the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to talk with Robert Hutchinson, author of What Really Happened to Hitler. The book is published by Regnery. We'll also hear from Stacy Thacker, Threadbare Prayer, Prayers for Hearts that Feel Hidden, Hurt, or Hopeless. That's coming up later in today's program. Well, Oregon employers have to take additional steps to keep their employees safe. Starting today, we have to be notified when we're uh, exposed to the coronavirus under new rules that take a, uh, took effect rather today. Well, the uh, Oregon OHSU or OSHA, it's not OHSU, these acronyms are hard to keep up with. The State Workplace Safety Division announced the rules last week after a four-month process. Well, workplace um, outbreaks have been a recurring problem since the pandemic hit the state last spring, especially in small towns where infections linked to food processing facilities have spread throughout communities. Well, workers uh, advocates, they've been calling for months for the state to adopt stricter rules governing employer conduct. Well, the new workplace rules unrelated to the statewide freeze that Governor Brown announced on Friday uh, started today. Um, they'll be in place until May the 4th. That's 2021. Well, under the new rules, employers must notify affected workers within 24 hours of a work-related coronavirus infection, and they have to cooperate with public health officials in any subsequent testing. They have to ensure at least six feet distance between people, although there is an exception in some cases where such distance isn't feasible, but for the most part, that's required. Ensure that workers are wearing face coverings and provide them free of cost. The rule covers the workplace and other places under an employer's control and vehicles where employees are being transported from work-related reasons or for work-related reasons. Uh, the new rule requires that uh, the employer maintain clean and current ventilation systems, though the rule doesn't require employers to install anything new. They have to develop an infection control plan to govern when workers must use personal protective equipment and describe specific hazard controls. Employers also have to conduct a risk assessment with feedback from employees to gauge potential hazards. Those mandates don't take effect until December the 7th. Also, they have to inform and train workers about infection risks in the language understood by their workers. Well, the OSHA, the Health Authority, accepts complaints about the workplace and violations online. Um, severe workplace outbreaks have persisted all year, but health officials haven't blamed them for the Oregon uh, spike in COVID-19 cases over the past three weeks. Rather, health authorities say that reckless social gatherings are behind the latest surge. And I'm not sure how they know that, but the two-week freeze the governor ordered on Friday allows retailers, factories, construction projects, and nearly all other businesses to continue operating. But be, uh, beginning on Wednesday, Oregon is shutting down gyms, prohibiting dine-in service at restaurants and bars. I went to a restaurant and met a friend, socially distanced and on all last night. And the, uh, the server announced that they were closing for the entire month uh, in response to the governor's um, directive. 
Taking a look at some of the national news, violent rioters threw fireworks at Trump supporters eating um, dinner after the MAGA march in Washington. A suspect has been arrested in that case, but there was violence elsewhere. Police have arrested a suspect in that incident. They say is connected with fireworks that went off at a D.C. restaurant on Saturday hitting Trump supporters after the Million MAGA march, according to reports. A video of the incident shows a large crowd descending on P.J. Clark's restaurant just a few blocks away from the White House. With a heated confrontation between a small group of Trump supporters and a hostile crowd, someone set off fireworks that exploded on the patio, apparently throwing them at the diners. It wasn't immediately clear whether anyone was injured. On Sunday, police said that they have arrested a 26-year-old in connection with the fireworks, he'd been charged with assault with a dangerous weapon. It was one of the more one of more than 20 recorded arrests after the violence that ensued hours after tens of thousands of Trump supporters gathered in Washington to offer Trump support and urge him not to concede the election. In other developments, uh, former President Barack Obama compared uh, Donald Trump to a dictator who suppresses journalists, which was almost laughable after his own administration targeted reporters very aggressively. Candace Owens has slammed intelligence agencies over allowing domestic terror to run rampant, and Ivanka Trump slammed the media for ignoring violence against conservatives. Kenneth Starr on Trump, his legal challenge says, allow this litigation to run its course. And the media took heat for ignoring the violent attacks on Trump supporters at the MAGA rally. They simply chose not to cover it. Well, NASA has made its first operational SpaceX Crew Dragon launch, which was seen as an important milestone for the space program. The SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket carrying the Crew Dragon spacecraft lifted off from Florida's Kennedy Space Center at 7.27 p.m. Eastern Time Sunday. Shortly uh, after launch, the first stage booster rocket separated from Crew Dragon and touched down on a drone ship in the Atlantic Ocean. This is pretty cool because you can reuse the hardware. Well, the Crew Dragon spacecraft, which was named Resilience by the crew, will reach the International Space Station around 11 p.m. Eastern Time this evening. Resilience rises, tweeted NASA at liftoff. Well, the Crew-1 mission is uh, transporting NASA astronauts Mike Hopkins, Victor Glover, Shannon Walker, a Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency astronaut Sochi Naguchi to the International Space Station aboard the Crew Dragon vehicle. It follows a successful Demo-2 mission earlier this year. The six-month mission is the first crew rotation flight on a U.S. commercial spacecraft. A great launch tweeted President Trump. NASA was a closed-up disaster when we took over. Now it again is the hottest, most advanced space center in the world by far. In other developments, Vice President Pence says the SpaceX Crew-1 launch proves NASA is back and that President Trump has secured America's leadership in space. Elon Musk was sidelined from the historic SpaceX launch by COVID-19. No explanation given. Hurricane Lada is potentially catastrophic and forming fast. And Egypt unveiled ancient coffins and statues found in Saqqara. Well, CNN's Jake Tapper says Christmas is probably not going to be possible this year. Really, does he think that's going to be the case? Well, CNN's State of the Union host Jake Tapper suggested during a Sunday interview with Dr. Anthony Fauci that Christmas is probably not going to be possible. Well, it not only is possible, it already happened, and we're celebrating what 
already happened. Anyway, he says, uh, as medical experts warn of COVID-19 spikes caused by widespread indoor holiday gatherings, it's probably not going to happen. Well, case numbers for COVID-19 continue to rise in several states across the country, tampering the hopes of millions of Americans seeking to restore a sense of normalcy uh, with upcoming holidays. Dr. Fauci, who serves as the director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, told CNN that even with widespread distribution of the vaccine, the public can't abandon fundamental health, public health measures, specifically social distancing and mask wearing. You can approach a degree of normality while still doing some fundamental health things like uh, synergize with the vaccine to get us back to normal, Fauci said. Well, Tapper noted that based on Dr. Fauci's recommendations, which are expected to extend into the second or third quarter of 2021, Christmas is probably not going to be possible. Well, Christmas, for those of us who actually know the babe in the manger, will be celebrated perhaps differently, but Christmas will happen. The Grinch, or COVID-19, cannot prevent that. In other developments, French Catholics protest for an end to the lockdown on a mass and a German ad thanks uh, couch potatoes for staying at home during the coronavirus pandemic, which presumably they would have done whether or not there was a pandemic. Democratic Representative Ryan urges President Trump to put the needs of the American people first. Not quite clear in what regard he was making the statement, but Bill de Blasio, he plans to keep New York City schools open Monday after warning parents of a return to remote learning. President Trump says for the first time that Biden won, adding that he's not conceding. He spent the rest of the day clarifying he only won because of fraud. Well, squad member Ilhan Omar claims that the Democratic Party's one big family, ignoring internal sparring over their agenda. And House leaders are urging Democrats not to join Team Biden in order to maintain their majority. In other words, members of the House being invited to join the uh, Biden administration. They're urging them to stay put for that reason. Um, Mr. Warnock has slammed Chuck Schumer's focus on control of the Senate in the Georgia runoff. A lot of shenanigans going on there. And Bernie Sanders claims the far left agenda is supported by the majority of the American people. That hasn't yet to be proven, nonetheless. An MSNBC segment attacks white women claiming that their active role in white supremacy should be called out. So if you happen to be Caucasian by design, which is what God made you, um, this MSNBC segment suggests that the fact that you are white means that you are active in the white supremacy movement. By the way, as an African-American woman, by design, I reject that notion. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the uh, later part of this hour of today's program, we'll talk with Robert Hutchinson, author of What Really Happened to Hitler. The book is published by Regnery. We'll also hear from Stacy Thacker. She's the author of Threadbare Prayer, Prayers for Hearts that Feel Hidden, Hurt, or Hopeless. And I have to confess, trying to keep it together here, I have to confess that we recorded a conversation earlier in the day, just moments ago, with an author, uh, Kelly Bellari. Her book is Rest Now, Seven Ways to Say No, Set Boundaries, and Seize Joy. We dutifully recorded three segments of that conversation, only to find out that through technical difficulties, which we've had a couple of times in the last week and a half, None of that interview recorded. So we're going to share with you, well, classic interviews, if you will. A little frustrated. I'll leave it at that. 
Well, taking a look back at the news, um, Biden advisors are planning to meet with vaccine firms this week. But suddenly these firms are more credible than they were just weeks before because they were linked to the current president. An Alaska Airlines jet hit a brown bear while landing in southeast Alaska. And New Yorkers are fleeing the city in droves with the coronavirus and crime concerns. Well, Chuck Schumer is referring to Mitch McConnell, in fact, refers to him as Dr. No on the COVID relief package negotiations. Of course, the level of um, support they want to provide, I think it's up to three, what, trillion, billion, million dollars at this point. Pfizer BioNTech Vaccine Center says life could return to normal next winter. Be prepared to wait until next winter. China's factory output beats forecast as Asia shakes off its COVID slump. Well, an anti-Trump crowd attacked Trump supporters uh, over the weekend. The MAGA Million March dealt with several incidents. More than 20 people were arrested. Meanwhile, Trump says he will not concede and we have a long way to go. Peggy Noonan, writing for The Wall Street Journal, points out that in a week of talking to Republican political leaders, all by nature competitive, most veterans of tough races, I haven't found one who believes Donald Trump won. All believe that there was a fraud in the vote and that this year's uh, semi-crazy pandemic rules made clear the need for some baseline national voting standards, but none believe, though some seemed hoping, there was enough fraud to change the result. Again, Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal. Well, some governors have uh, brought shutdowns back as COVID cases climb. Of course, our own governors in Oregon and Washington among them. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer's administration on Sunday ordered high schools and colleges to stop in-person classes, closed restaurants to indoor dining and suspended organized sports, including the football playoffs in a bid to curb the state's spiking coronavirus cases. Uh, from Scott Gottlieb, he points out at least while in infections are widespread and surging, governors and local leaders should mandate the use of masks and impose clear and consistent plans to restrict gatherings. They should remind people to avoid large groups at Thanksgiving and stay home if possible, writing for the Wall Street Journal. But in the Golden State, California Governor Gavin Newsom has been caught violating his own social distancing rules by attending a birthday party at a Napa uh, Valley restaurant with a dozen or so friends, even as some two million in his state are unemployed thanks to his strict virus rules. So the rules apply to some, but not all. Seth Mandel points out that bars open, schools close, minimal, and I mean minimal, federal help for businesses. Did the coronavirus right our national response? Well, a look at how the uh, cases have jumped, but deaths uh, so far have only gone up slightly is an important element to this developing story. And a Democrat Senate candidate says America needs to repent for its worship of whiteness. Uh, one of the Democratic candidates for Senate in Georgia, Raphael Warnock, said America needs to repent of its worship of whiteness on full display this season. Uh, Warnock used a Biden dodge on the Castro controversy, calling the question trying to change the subject then denying any involvement he had complimented Castro in the past, and Democrats didn't realize what a radical they had on their hands. Well, it's coming out in full display now. We'll see how that runoff goes. An ACLU lawyer celebrates censorship of a book critical of transgender extremism. The organization has done a complete 180 on censorship. Look at how Twitter, um, uh, the Twitter that started it all ended up with censorship. Well, some in today's ACLU favor book banning. Grace Levy, a professor of English at the University of California, Berkeley, went further, tweeting, I do encourage followers to steal Abigail Schreier's book and burn it uh, on a pyre. This is where leftist extremism encouraged by cowardly corporations leads. The market, that is, readers should determine what booksellers carry. 
My book was consistently number one in several categories on Amazon based on sales, but the online giant under pressure from extremists refused to allow my publisher to advertise the irreversible damage, says the author Abigail Shire. Many uh, having more than 10 for Thanksgiving and will require guests to wear masks, but they're going to celebrate. And my guess is many will celebrate Christmas in a similar way. Not sure I believe that last uh, part. Uh, nearly 33% of respondents of a new poll said that they would not require friends or family to wear masks at Thanksgiving gatherings. And 25% said they would not practice social distancing, according to the poll. Uh, tough to imagine that many Thanksgiving hosts demanding their guests wear masks. We'll see what um, what actually transpires. And cancel culture goes after actresses for wanting voter fraud stopped. Uh, Carano, the actress who plays shock trooper Kara Dune on the show, recent, recently found herself under another attack from the, uh, the left because of comments she made about the election. Now extremist progressives are calling on Disney to fire her because she has the wrong opinion on the race between President Trump and former uh, Vice President Joe Biden. On Friday, the actress posted a tweet stating that there should be a law to protect elections from voter fraud. We need to clean up the election process so we're not left feeling the way we do today. Put laws in place that protect us against voter fraud. Investigate every state. Film the counting. Flush out the fake votes. Require ID. Make voter fraud end in 2020. Fix the system. Now, she doesn't say she thinks the outcome was false. She just thought the system is flawed. Meanwhile, families continue to bail on New York City. The most recent report on population changes in the Big Apple shows that more than 300,000 denizens of New York City have moved to locations outside the city since the virus blew into town. And the number who packed their uh, things and flew the coop just over the summer is well more than twice the number doing so during the same period in 2019. A venture capitalist in the Wall Street Journal explained why he's bailing on the state of California. It's an interesting read. Well, the murder rate in Minneapolis has skyrocketed as police abandoned the force. And after politicians abused the police for months, they are now desperately trying to patch together a police department. A German man contacts a Jewish family of the store his Nazi grandfather took over. He reached out to apologize. It's quite a story. Well, Trump supporters descended on Washington to defend the president. The president did an in-person lap at the Million MAGA March. And uh, former Vice President Biden was called out for his silence as leftists attacked rally goers. He has since said he rejects violence of every kind. For what it's worth, federal prosecutors tell William Barr they see no evidence of substantial irregularities. And Trump's litigation outlook is dim, says Andrew McCarthy. He's not alone. This is the president's fatal problem. No matter which battleground state we analyze, there is always a mismatch between the impropriety alleged and the remedy that could uh, it could yield. Where Trump is strongest, as in the Supreme Court case, the yield in votes is a relative pittance. Where Trump's claims are weaker and hotly disputed, the president is asking for mass disenfranchisement, which no court is ever going to order. Well, Trump says Biden won while claiming the race was rigged and refusing to concede. Sidney Powell says they're fixing the over uh, fixing to overturn the results of the election in several states. And a legal team is uh, demanding a probe of uh, Dominion voting uh, software. That's where most of our voting machines come from. Well, the campaign jettisons major parts of the legal challenge against Pennsylvania. Trump's attorneys filed a revised uh, version of the lawsuit, removing allegations that election officials violated the Trump campaign's constitutional rights 
candidates by limiting the ability of their observers to watch votes being counted. Trump's pared down lawsuit now focuses on allegations that Republicans were illegally disadvantaged because some Democratic leaning counties allowed voters to fix errors on their mail ballots. Counties have said they affected only a small number of votes. Well, rife for speculation, a judge smacks down a Detroit uh, Detroit voter fraud lawsuit and a mob forced Trump lawyers to withdraw their representation. Well, Trump may hamstring Biden by enacting a series of tough on China policies before leaving office and companies are preparing to cut jobs and automate if Biden gets $15 minimum wage hike. Speaker Pelosi won't accept the blame for House losses, but she will take credit for winning a majority. And by the way, leadership positions are going to be selected this week. And we're shocked. Yes, shocked to learn that China congratulated its old pal, Joe Biden, on the election. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Robert Hutchinson's What Really Happened to Adolf Hitler. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a great history mystery. And my next guest... I started a series simply titled What Really Happened? And today we're going to take a look at one of those mysteries. Uh, We did the same back in April when he joins us to talk about what happened in the Lincoln assassination. But today we're going to be talking about whether or not Adolf Hitler died in his bunker or whether he didn't. Well, award-winning pop history author Robert Hutchinson He takes a new look at the case and he explores what really happened to Adolf Hitler in the second of his What Really Happened series, What Really Happened, The Death of Hitler. Well, according to official accounts and numerous eyewitnesses, the dictator of the Third Reich shot himself. Loyal Nazis burned his body and the bones were removed by the Russians. Yet after World War II, some 50 percent of Americans polled didn't believe the captured Nazis who said that Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun had committed suicide in their Berlin bunker were telling the truth. They thought the Fuhrer had faked his death and escaped justice. Joseph Stalin himself told Allied leaders that Soviet forces never discovered his body and that he believed the Nazi leader had gotten away. There were numerous reports of top Nazi officials successfully fleeing to South America. Did Adolf Hitler do the same. Well, Robert Hutchinson is an award-winning writer, speaker, and author of numerous books of popular history, including What Really Happened, The Lincoln Assassination, When in Rome, and The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Bible. The general editor of the What Really Happened series, he gives talks on historical topics to groups throughout the country and Europe. He blogs at roberthutchinson.com, but today we're talking about his latest book, What Really Happened, The Death of Hitler. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on again. This is a great book to read this summer um, because you cover so much territory and so much of what we have known, uh, what we think or thought we knew, and what we now <laughs> assume about uh, what happened to Adolf Hitler. Now, why why was there such mystery around what actually happened uh, to the man who instigated World War II? Well, this is a story that's had a lot of legs. In other words, um, there's been a lot of things that have buttressed Uh, those people who say that Hitler likely got away uh, over the decades. Just when things seem to quiet down, something seems to happen that that gives new life to the story that Hitler uh, might have escaped. I mean, it wasn't until um, as late as 2014 that Barack Obama um, authorized the release of formerly top-secret FBI and CIA files that revealed that the FBI itself was investigating whether Hitler escaped well into the 1950s. So that gave kind of new life to the story. And then in 2009, 
the Russians finally allowed a U.S. pathology team to examine uh, a skull fragment that they said was Hitler's. It had a bullet hole in it. And the U.S. experts said, based on DNA analysis and other tests, it could not have been Hitler's. It was a skull of a woman under the age of 40. So that set headlines all over the world. Maybe Hitler didn't die in the bunker after all. Maybe maybe his, the history books got it wrong and so on. And then in 2015, the History Channel did a three-year reality TV show dedicated to exploring this topic and, and taking it very, very seriously. So this has just been a story that kind of cries out to, to really settle it once and for all and determine what really happened. Has it been settled once and for all? I'm not going to ask you to give a definitive uh, yes, I know, or <laughs> but has it been uh, resolved at this point? Yes. Uh, two years ago, it was resolved. In 2018, uh, for the first time ever, scientific uh, definitive tests were, were performed that let us know for certain what actually happened to Adolf Hitler in the years after World War. Up to that point, there really had only, there had been no body discovered, um, as far as the West was concerned, at least. Um, and there were lots of holes in the official account that conspiracy theorists and authors and so on were able to point to, to at least give doubt to the official account. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were two submarines, Nazi submarines, that visited the coast of Argentina in July 1945. We have pictures of them. We know all about them. There were planes that took off right at the last minute going down. I've been, I was in Berlin researching this and you, the, the big boulevard in the middle of the Tiergarten park in central Berlin was used as a runway and famous Nazi test pilots were able to escape at the last minute. And we know that Hans Bauer, uh, Hitler's private pilot had a jet or not a jet, had a, had a long range aircraft standing by to whisk him away. And all of his associates were begging him to please escape so all, we know all this stuff, and that has given credence to this story over the years, and that's what makes it so fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Well, let's go back and talk about the original story about Hitler's death. What was the story that was given at the time that most people didn't believe at the time, but was uh, the official um, story about how Hitler died, if in fact Hitler died? Well, what, what most people don't realize is that the Western allies, the U.S. Army and so on, didn't come into Berlin for two months after the end of the war. The Russians were allowed to, to conquer Berlin. It was agreed at the Yalta Conference that they were to get that quote-unquote honor, and that's what they did. So there was no body. And so and there were all these um, – the Russians were saying different things to different people. And so the West, um, the Western allies basically – appointed a Oxford historian named Hugh Trevor Roper to do a definitive report. And he was able to interview some of the witnesses, but not all of them. Uh, and he, based on what they said, he wrote the official report, the story we all know from the 2004 German story, uh, German film Downfall, that Adolf Hitler married his longtime mistress, Eva Braun, in a brief civil ceremony. And then they retired to their inner room and Hitler shot himself and Eva Braun's likely swallowed a um, cyanide capsule. And then, as you said, their aides took their bodies up to the garden of the Fuhrer bunker and put them in a trench, poured dozens of gallons of gasoline on them, lit them on fire. And that was the last anyone knew of what happened to their bodies, according to Hugh Trevor Roper and the official accounts. And that remained the case for about 30 years. Nobody knew what happened. It wasn't until 
uh, the late 60s and early 70s that the Russians finally admitted that, yeah, they, they, they actually did probably find Hitler's remains after all. So, um, mm-hmm. But they never provided any proof one way or the other. And that's why the story has continued is because the Russians were very tight-lipped about it, about what really happened. But we now know what actually happened was they recovered the remains of Hitler and Eva Braun and the Goebbels family. They performed a, a cursory autopsy, not very thorough, and they buried them in a secret location where they stayed for 25 years uh, in Madeburg, Germany. Have those remains ever been recovered? <laughs> well, no. What happened was in 19... 19- <laughs> In 1970, see, it's a very murky story. The, the chain yes. of events are, uh, in 1970, the, the, the Soviets agreed to give back Germany to the East Germans. They were mm-hmm. basically an occupying army up to that point. And they were afraid that, that their secret would come out and that enterprising Germans would find the secret burial place of Hitler. And it would become a, a Nazi shrine, the way Lenin's tomb is a shrine for the communists. So they ordered... Uh, uh, Andropov, who was then the head of security, later became a Russian premier, ordered mm-hmm. that the bodies be dug up, disinterred from their secret location, re-incinerated again, and the dust be scattered in uh, a river uh, in East Germany, which is what happened. And we, the people that did that have spoken on the record about how they did that. There were two two officers did it. and But they kept two things. They kept the skull fragment I told you about earlier that they thought was Hitler's, and they kept his jawbone with his teeth in it. And it was Hitler's teeth that allowed for finally a positive identification that it was Adolf Hitler. If his teeth were in Moscow, then it was impossible that he escaped to Argentina. And in 2018, for the very first time ever, the Russians allowed a French forensic team to examine Hitler's teeth. And this team said, with absolute certainty, they were Hitler's team <laughs> because wow. of many factors. But the one, one reason they could positively identify him, they did have dental records that were, however, drawn from memory from Hitler's dentist because his actual dental records disappeared in a plane crash in 1945, another mysterious coincidence. But they also had in the possession of the U.S. intelligence, x-rays of Hitler's skull that were taken after the July 1944 assassination attempt, and those x-rays matched exactly the jawbone. So that allowed them to make a positive identification. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Robert Hutchinson, who has uh, entered his second edition in the um, uh, What Really Happened series, The Death of Hitler. This is the second in that series. Uh, a great read if you'd like to have some understanding of what we know, what we thought we knew, and what we've now confirmed. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Robert Hutchinson, his latest book, What Really Happened? The Death of Hitler. Uh, this has been a mystery unresolved uh, for many, many years, as we all know. Uh, and this is a, a, a look at uh, the evidence and uh, what's happened over the decades following the declaration that he and Eva Braun uh, committed suicide with definitive answers. Now, we know that um, Hitler had uh, had used body doubles. Um, could he have used one in the bunker while he and Eva Braun escaped? Could the X-ray that you made reference to have been someone other than himself? 
Of course. Yes, <laughs> they could have used that. Uh, they, they, I mean, I mean, seriously, that's, that's actually all of these things. Uh, you're talking about possibility, probability, plausibility, and all of these things are inherently possible and in some cases even plausible. And yes, Hitler did have occasionally used body doubles. The Russians, after they came, right after they arrived at the bunker on May 3rd, they found a body that kind of had a little Hitler mustache and they thought with a bullet hole right between his eyes. And they thought that it might have been Hitler's body double, but they were able to rule it out. There were some Russians who had actually met Hitler and said, no, that, that's definitely not him. But yes, they could have done that. The conspiracy theorists say that's exactly what happened, that the uh, top Hitler aides swapped out uh, a body double of Hitler and an, and an actress who worked for Goebbels um, as, as Ava Braun. The real Hitler and Ava Braun escaped in a plane, and the fake Hitler and Ava Braun retired to Hitler's inner room where they thought they were just going to have a nice lunch and were shot dead by a Gestapo officer, and then those bodies were burned. And those were the bodies that the eyewitnesses saw. So that's the story that the conspiracy theorists say. Hmm. Unfortunately, their evidence for that is practically non-existent. They, they have one, uh, one uh, facial identification expert that they rely upon who says that photographs of Hitler could not have been Hitler at a certain point in the final week of his life and so on. But those photos are so murky anyway that it's a pretty big stretch to accept that. And that's their only evidence. And the fact is, if you actually read some of these books, like Grey Wolf and others that say that Hitler escaped, they really have no evidence at all. Mm-hmm. Most of their books are talk about these plausibilities. Were there pilots who could have flown Hitler out of there? Yes. Were there submarines? Yes. Was there secret Nazi gold that could have supported Hitler in his, in his getaway? Yes. They don't actually get around, though, to showing you ev- any evidence, really, that he actually did it. Most of the books are just discussing these kind of other circumstances that make it possible. But that's not the same thing as being true. Yeah, yeah. And so... What are some of the other major (laughs) myths surrounding his death? Um, Well, you know, the the big myths for me are are less about his... Well, some of the things that have amazed me studying this is how um, the the role the media played in keeping this alive. Uh, One of the reasons people believe this is there were literally thousands of articles that had sightings of Hitler in the tabloid press and so on. And that kept this story alive for a long time, that Hitler was able to escape and live in Argentina. There were photographs, you know, people, there were cover stories in magazines uh, that had Hitler on them that said, did Hitler, did Hitler live in Buenos Aires and so on? Um, What I really learned from this research was less about Hitler's death than about his life, about how Mm. he was able to take total control of a nation so quickly and um, that's what kind of surprised me, that I learned I hadn't really realized. I mean, I knew that Hitler was democratically elected and that he played by the rules in that sense. But I didn't really understand how he set, set the groundwork for that and how um, the government institutions in Germany relinquished their responsibility and basically handed power over to him uh, legally. It was all done legally. Everything the Nazis did at first was done, quote unquote, legally uh, through the passing of laws and so on due to an emergency. They thought that they were under attack. The, their, 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 uh, the Reichstag 
which is their parliament building, the equivalent to our Congress, was burned uh, in, a, in a big fire. And a uh, communist guy was arrested. And so there was a lot of fear that there, um, a communist coup might be in the offing and so on. And again, it was plausible. They had seen what had happened in Russia, the German people, and they knew that the Russians had shot tens of thousands of people uh, to affect their revolution, and they didn't want that. And so the German institutions and government and parliament and so on relinquished power and gave up their civil liberties in a quote-unquote temporary way, and Hitler used that to seize complete total control. And that surprised me. I mean, I knew it mm-hmm. a little bit, but I didn't know the de- the details of it. And that was what I was really shocked by. Yeah. Well, this story certainly has captured the imagination of uh, the world over because the thought of Adolf Hitler uh, escaping justice is just more than I think most people could could have taken at that time and even um, uh, up to the present. What happened to the last minute plans to fly Hitler and Eva Braun out of Berlin? Why wouldn't they have, and this is speculative, I suppose, why wouldn't they have availed themselves of that option rather than uh, to end their lives as we now know they did? Um, uh, Hitler didn't want to go. Um, I mean, it, it, he was quite clear. Uh, I mean, as far as we can know with certitude in history, uh-huh. in his last will and testament, he announced that he was planned on ending his life. Uh, in, in the two documents, his political testament and his personal will, he stated that that was his intention. He told all of his aides that that, that was his intention. We have the, the memoirs of all of his the survivors of the Fuhrer bunker who said he said that repeatedly. They have, We have their accounts of... Uh, like Magda Goebbels, the wife of Joseph Goebbels, literally begging Hitler on his knees to escape because she felt that was the only way she and her children could live is if he lived. Otherwise, she knew that her husband intended on them all committing suicide if Hitler died. So she was literally begging him right at the last minute, actually, if you've seen that 2004 film Downfall. Yes. Right at the last minute, as they're closing the door, she comes in and begs Hitler to escape, and he adamantly refused because he thought he'd be caught anyway, and that he would stand trial and be humiliated the way Mussolini was humiliated. Humiliated, and he had no intention of doing that. So uh, that's why I, I think it's certain that that's what actually, that he actually did kill himself. Even though everybody wanted to escape. So that is that part of the conspiracy theory books is true. They did want him to escape. But he himself had other plans. He himself had other plans. Yeah. And Why do you I think? I say in my book. Oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, what I say in my you know, there were 40 attempts to kill Adolf Hitler, 40 documented attempts. And they, some of them came really close um, to blowing him to bits, as we know. From Operation Valkyrie and so on, mm-hmm. but his erratic schedule always foiled them. And in the end, what what all of his generals and all these conspiracies failed to do, in a sense, Hitler did himself, which is kill himself. And the moment he did, the the war stopped, the killing stopped. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, he uh, the moment he died was when World War II ended, at least in Europe. And um, uh, you, you know, it's just. The, the the last, say, six months, nine months of the war is when much of the death toll actually occurred. So it's kind of a tragedy that if Hitler yes. had done this earlier, he might have spared 
millions of people from dying. Mm-hmm. Why do you think this story still resonates? Obviously, uh, Adolf Hitler was such a tyrant. He was responsible for so much killing in the prosecution of the war, as well as in its uh, his solution to eliminate the, the world of uh, the Jewish community. Why do you think people still um, uh, have so much interest in this story and of certainly of resolving what happened to Adolf Hitler at the end of the war? Well, because he, you know, he continues to fascinate the world because this ordinary man, and he was a very ordinary man in many ways, how this ordinary man who never achieved more than the rank of corporal in the army, he was basically a, a, a high school dropout who, uh, who basically starved on the streets of Vienna as he sold his watercolor postcards. And, you know, he failed at pretty much everything he ever did, yet he was able to take control of one of the most sophisticated countries on earth in a very short period of time and then conquer uh, all of Europe uh, in a very, you know, within ten, in 10 years. Uh, so that fascinates people. And so how he was able to do it fascinates people. What kind of a person he was that could do that? And, and then, you know, how he tried, how, how he died and, and did he escape? It just kind of naturally lends itself to um, tabloid material. And it's just, you know, Hitler books always sell well for some strange reason. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's also a cautionary tale what to avoid uh, in the future to try to learn from history to uh, prevent uh, this from happening again. Yes, I've said this over and over on my book tour is that if I learned anything from this research and going to Germany and, and studying this period, some European recently said that Americans treat democracy like a football they can kick around and it should be treated like a Fabergé egg, their most mm. precious possession. Uh, it should be treated delicately and, and, and not easily uh, bruised or whatever. And that's what, that's what the lesson of Hitler actually is, is that uh, democracy is a very fragile thing and it, you can lose it in a heartbeat. At least in Germany, as I said, he, he used the democratic process to uh, eliminate democracy. And so we should all be on guard Absolutely. Uh, for that. You don't give up your civil rights, your civil liberties easily. Without the forensic um, capacity that we have today, could, the, could there be a definitive answer as to whether or not Adolf Hitler ended his life uh, at the end of World War II? Uh, well, you know, it depends on what degree of certitude you want. They had photographs of his teeth that were released earlier um, and uh, old fashioned dentists going on the dental records were able to make it a, a, a um, decision on that, that it was Hitler's teeth. Uh, what, what was different in 2018 was they were actually able to do physical uh, they were actually physically examined with an electron microscope, the actual teeth themselves. Uh, before that, the Russians had only released photographs. So you had photographs, and then you had um, remembered uh, dental records from Hitler's dentist and the dental technician who made his bridge work. And so, you know, that's what they used to say that, that yeah. those were probably Hitler's teeth. But, you know, what degree of certitude is that? So it just depends on – history is not like math. That's you don't right. have absolute certitude. <laughs> Yeah, you yeah. only have degrees of probability. Now, I have to ask you um, if you're willing to divulge the information. What's next in the What Really Happened series? 
we have a whole bunch of titles uh, that we've been batting around. We're, we've got to narrow down to a couple. Uh, we want to handle the, the problem is I want to be able to solve things. So, for example, Amelia Earhart, whatever happened, what really happened to Amelia Earhart, things like that. I want to be able to give a definitive answer, at least mm-hmm. within a reasonable degree of certitude. Same thing with JFK, things like that. Uh, so the topics that we're choosing have to be mysteries that have a lot of controversies surrounding them, but also ones that now after the passage of time, we think we have actually solved it. Uh, and so that eliminates a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It also leads for a lot of things, but it also eliminates things. Like I wouldn't want to take on JFK at this point. Amelia Earhart, I'm closer to. Well, we will certainly uh, wait with great interest for the next in the series. Robert Hutchinson, thank you so much for joining us once again. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on again. Thank you. Again, the book is uh, What Really Happened, The Death of Hitler. It's published by Regnery History. A great read. If you find, like most of us, you have a little extra time for reading. Uh, covers not just what happened at the end of his life, but as uh, Mr. Hutchinson pointed out, uh, some of the events that led to his prominence and, and as a leader and so on. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, life sometimes brings difficult situations or circumstances that can leave us feeling run down. We can be drained, worn out, and threadbare. We all know what that's like, having survived a global pandemic for the last several months. Well, illness, the death of a family member, the loss of a job, natural disasters, a pandemic. These are events that um, leave many of us struggling in ways we can't articulate. Well, these are the times we most desperately need prayer But they can also be the times we simply don't have the words to form a prayer. How do you pray when you can't find the words? Well, my next guest answers that question with a very simple but profound book, Threadbare Prayers, Prayers for Hearts That Feel Hidden, Hurt, or Hopeless. Well, Stacey Thacker, she presents 100 simple yet heartfelt devotions to guide readers on on the days they don't know what to pray or how to pray. Each entry in the uh, attractive, it's gift-worthy devotional contains a Bible verse, a brief thought, and a simple, concise prayer to encourage the reader's hearts. Well, Stacey Thacker is an author. She's a blogger, a speaker, and believer who loves God's word and connecting with women. Her passion is to encourage women in their walks with God and to equip them to study the Bible. She created the blog Community Mothers and Daughters and now blogs on her uh, site, StacyThacker.com. Stacy is the author of seven books, including Hope for the Weary Mom, Let God Meet You in the Midst, or in the Mess, and she's written a series of Bible studies, The Girlfriend's Guide to the Bible. She worked with Campus Crusade for Christ for five years before becoming a full-time mom to four daughters, and she joins us today to talk about her latest book, uh, Simply Threadbare Prayer. Stacy, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I hope you're having a great day today. Well, I am. You know, this is a challenging season for all of us. There are a lot of things that have converged in a uh, in a single point, and I think a lot of people are very weary, and your book is timely because uh, for those of us who are weary and sometimes struggle to articulate what's in our hearts, this is a great resource uh, for us. First of all, let me invite you to define what a threadbare prayer is. Yeah, a threadbare prayer is really just a simple prayer based on Scripture that's easy to remember. Um, I think sometimes we all have those times, like you said, that we we struggle to find the words. We we've asked why, we've asked how, we've asked how long, and we really 
we're looking for words to, to pray. And I think one of the best places to go when we don't have the words is to go to go to the word, go to scripture, where we can let scripture form our words. And that, that's really what a threadbare prayer is. You begin at the very um, early part of the book uh, to describe a circumstance in which you uh, really thought about the concept of being threadbare. Both your husband and your daughter had been hospitalized at the same time, but in two different locations, and you were just stretched. Can you kind of describe that feeling of um, being overwhelmed, but having um, the confidence that we can go to God's word and we have access to his ear uh, in those, uh, those challenging times? Yeah, uh, those feelings I think everybody can identify with just being yes. overwhelmed and desperate. It's just like that desperation feeling that you have. And I think as as someone who, you know, loves God and has walked with God and and, and believes in prayer and, and relies, I mean, I have a deep faith, but I think we all come to those moments where we finally realize that we need help. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we realize mm-hmm. that we can't, we can't, what I would say, like white knuckle our way through a situation. Like we are just fully dependent on the Lord. And, and the sad thing is, is it sometimes takes trials to put us in that situation where we really want and need to call on Jesus in those moments that are desperate. And so I think really at the core, um, a threadbare woman is someone that is just determined even in those moments, not to put distance between her and the Lord. It's so easy to push him away when you're hurting, but really what we need to do is draw near and hold on to him, even if we're just hanging by a thread. And I've just really found that prayer is just one of the best ways I have of just hanging on for dear life is through prayer. Now, the book is filled with very simple prayers. It could be used as a devotional. How do you envision your readers um, benefiting the most by reading Threadbare Prayer? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways. I think just as a morning devotional, or I've had a lot of people say that they use it at night before they go to bed, and it helps them just to read through the prayer. There's a verse and a very short devotional thought, and then at the end, just a simple prayer. And a lot of people have said, you know, I love reading these at night because it helps me fall asleep with a prayer, knowing that God is going to take care of me, and I don't have to worry and stay up and not sleep. Um, But also, I think it would be great just to use that you could journal your way through it, You could um, find a prayer that you could pray for a friend who's going through a hard time and you could jot a note to them and say, hey, I prayed this for you today. Um, I just think there's a lot of different ways. I love the fact that it's simple and easy to read. It takes, I mean, literally a minute to to read each of the prayers. It's it's a pretty easy read. You don't have to have a lot of margin to do it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is important when you're in that that status of being threadbare. Uh, in the book, you share stories of some of your own threadbare moments. Can you share some of them with us, uh, those times when you found yourself grasping for words to pray and turn to God's word and, and journaling as well, which is how much of what you've written here was birthed? Yeah, I think you're never more threadbare when, when you're in a crisis situation. And our family is just, we've just gone through several and, and kind of not even just one at a time. They kind of stacked up right on top of each other in the midst of one, something else would happen. But you mentioned at the top of the show, probably our the biggest and hardest thing we went through as a family is um, three years ago, my husband, who was 48 at the time, suffered a sudden cardiac arrest and his life really hung in the balance. And for weeks, um, we I found myself as a mother of four um, you know, having to make decisions for my husband and my girls and my family. And my husband was, you know, he was in a coma. Uh, it was just a really challenging time. Now, God was kind and merciful and he made a recovery and you know, he's doing well today. But in those moments and those 
those hospital room moments or those moments where you're alone at home and, and you're trying to figure out how to take the next breath, those moments that are just, they just, it's like a storm that comes on you and you just, you're, you're crying out, like literally save us, Lord. Um, that's really the moments that these prayers um, really took, took form, especially the one I, during that time that I really hung on to was Psalms 23, one, um, which, you know, is a Psalms we all think of at times, but it's the Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing. And I just hung on to that prayer for days and weeks and really um, let that just be kind of the undercurrent of my prayer during those times, because I didn't know what to ask for at that point, mm-hmm. but just leaning into to the Lord as my shepherd really helped me to understand that he was going to take care of us no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes we're in those, uh, when we're in those stressful moments, it's difficult to recall. Now, where are the scriptures that I, uh, that are really encouraging to me, that feed me, that help restore me, and uh, to have them in a single volume, I think is very helpful when you're in the middle of that kind of situation. Is it also helpful during times when you're just weary or overcome by busyness? And I think that describes many of us, not only through this season, but throughout just life in general, where there is a, a, a weariness about our days and um, oftentimes a busyness. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. I mean, I think everyone right now has felt as we've gone through this season of pandemic and COVID, I think everyone's just carrying around with them an extra layer of grief. We're all kind of carrying mm-hmm. extra weight. And so I think if you add that to just a normal thing, I mean, just getting groceries and doing laundry and all the things we do working now, we're all working from home and there's all these things that just, they, they're just wearing, they just wear on you. And when you think about even the word threadbare, it's, it's, it's consistent daily use that, you know, makes a coat become threadbare or a pair of jeans, like rip at the knee. Like it's not necessarily a big tragic crisis event. Sometimes that does happen, but very often our faith wears thin when it's just, just the day in and the day out of just normal everyday life. And so I do think this is a book that you could grab even in those moments when you just needed a little bit of hope. You just needed a little bit of something to to help you make it through even just a day. Um, it doesn't have to be a large a large event. It could be just, you know, normal life. I think we all feel that from time to time. We're talking uh, this afternoon with Stacey Thacker. She's the author of Threadbare Prayer, Prayers for Hearts That Feel Hidden hurt or hopeless. And I think many of us can relate, especially during this season, but certainly beyond as well. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Stacy Thacker. She is a prolific author, and her latest book is Threadbare Prayer, Prayers for Hearts That Feel Hidden, Hurt, or hopeless. I think many of us struggle when we cannot find the words to pray and might be reluctant to um, rely on another's words um, and, and imagine that God will hear us. How do we pray when we lack the words, but have access to a resource that might help us along the way? Does God hear us in that circumstance? Mm, absolutely. I call those borrowed words. And I, I'm, I think that is absolutely fine. I think God looks at our heart and it doesn't matter if they're your words or someone else's if you pray them from your heart. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that really encourages me um, is a verse from Romans eight twenty six that says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, even when we don't know what to pray as we ought, that the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And I just love that, that the Spirit knows our hearts, and he knows um, that we what we want to say, even when we can't say it. And I think that that's 
completely and totally fine um, when you don't have those words to trust um, that God has the words and he is praying on your behalf. Now, oftentimes these kinds of threadbare prayers happen when we're in the wilderness. Is there a way to prepare for those seasons when we find ourselves in the wilderness or do we just always find ourselves surprised by them? Is there some way to anticipate and prepare for that season that will come? Well, I don't, I don't know if we can anticipate it necessarily, but I do believe that we can prepare. Um, I think it was um, Billy Graham said something to the effect of you're either in a trial, going through a trial, you've just come out of a trial. Like the idea is that at some point we're going to need those resources. I think what we do in the seasons when we're not, we're not in the wilderness season is that we, we, we take time to be in the word. We pray and as best we can, we find deep fellowship with other believers. Um, we listen to Christian talk shows like this. We listen to rate, you know, worship music, praise music that build us up. Um, I think nothing prepares you for the wilderness, like going through a hard time. And so I think you can also draw on those times that you've had before in your life where you've had, you've gone through hard times and you've seen, you know what, God was faithful to us then and he will be faithful again. That's right. Now, you shared one of your favorite Bible verses that spoke to you during time that you spent in the wilderness. Um, The Lord, um, you are my shepherd and I lack nothing. Can you share some of your other favorite uh, Bible verses that have been a comfort to you? Mm. Yeah, one that I love is from Psalms 116.2, and it says, because he bends down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath. And a friend shared that with me, and that has become one of my favorite prayers is just to re- because it reminds me that God is positioned in such a way that he's listening for us. He's leaning down towards us to listen to us. So that's that's one that I love. I also happen to love Psalms 91, 1, um, and, the, and the threadbare prayer that comes from that is just, Lord, you're my secret dwelling place. Just a reminder that we can tuck ourselves in the shelter of his wing and, and, and underneath his shadow so we can get so close to him. It's just such a sweet and I think, protective place that we can draw near to. Now, for many of us, we want to minister to friends or family members while they're going through one of those threadbare times. Is it better to try to offer encouragement or to simply offer a listening ear? How do you suggest we approach others who may be struggling? I think sometimes when when our friends are hurting, I think we struggle with what to say. We think we have to say something really profound. What meant the most to me, I can tell you time and time again, was prayer and, and just presence, people being with me and and just saying, hey, I'm praying for you. And maybe sometimes just praying over me, like just praying in that moment. It doesn't have to be a a really strong sermonette on how we suffer and what, you know, it just, if you just sit with someone, you know, maybe take them a coffee or take them, you know, some cookies or something. It just seems so simple, but just showing that you care, it just goes a long, long way. Yeah, that ministry of presence. And I would encourage, you know, a copy of the book, Threadbrayer Prayer, that gives them a resource to to turn to, to remind them of what God's Word has to say that is so encouraging and comforting during those times when we're in the, the wilderness. Now, what, what would you say to someone who is right now, and I would imagine many of us would fit into this category, uh, feel that we're in the middle of a desert. Um, we've just finished a contentious election that's not resolved. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Parents are trying to provide for their children children's education while the children are home and they're trying to work. There's so many things that are pressing in on us. What do you say now to someone who's in the middle of that desert? That's a good question. I know a lot of people are there right now. And I think I would just encourage them that, that Jesus is powerfully drawn to your threadbare heart. And he, he gives us an invitation in um, Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says, come to me, come to me. And he, you know, 
he wants to be your comforter. And he is a friend. He's close to us. He's not far away. I think sometimes when we're feeling we're feeling threadbare, we we think he's far away, but he's not. He's right there with you. And I would just say, if you can take one scripture and let that just be your anchor and use that as a prayer back to him, I think that that I have just realized that as I as I receive his comforting ministry in my life, that he just does beautiful things in our broken places. We have to let him do that. And he wants to do that for us, I believe. Amen. Amen. Well, as we were preparing to close, would you mind praying for someone who's listening to help them find the words that they might need at this moment when they are feeling threadbare? Absolutely. This is one of my favorite um, prayers. It's from Psalm 68, 19. And the verse says, praise the Lord, praise God, our Savior, for each day he carries us in his arms. Lord, in the midst of all that comes against us, remind us that your power and your promises persist as well. We may be striving and needy and battle weary, but you are triumphant, sufficient, and good. Lord, help us to remember that when we need shelter, you cover us. When we need daily bread, you're able to rain it down from heaven. And if we need a defender, you come quickly to protect us. It doesn't matter what we need, you can provide it. It's amazing to think that you do all of this while you tenderly carry us in your arms. Focusing on your daily care is such a comfort to our threadbare hearts because nobody cares for us like you do, Jesus. So we will praise you, Lord, because you carry us every single day. Every single day. Once again, the book is titled Threadbare Prayer, Prayers for Hearts That Feel Hidden, Hurt, or Hopeless. If you are feeling uh, all of those things, you can certainly pick up a copy of the book. Or if you know someone who's struggling, you might make this a gift. It's a it's beautifully um, published and bound, and I think you'll uh, you'll appreciate that. Stacy Thacker, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, taking a look at some of the day's remaining news. Well, tax filings reveal that Biden's cancer charity spent millions on salaries, but zero on research. The Biden Cancer Initiative was founded in 2017 by the former vice president and his wife, Jill Biden, but it gave out no grants in its first two years and spent millions on the salaries of former Washington, D.C. aides it hired. The charity took in $4,809,619 in contributions in fiscal years 2017 and 18, spent $3,070,000 on payroll in those two years. Well, Obama said, I'm not yet ready to abandon the possibility of America. Christy Nome fired back, calling his message ridiculous. You can read more about that on the Daily Wire. A source says the uh, uh, Durham investigation is closing down without indictments out of fear of Biden blowback. Jim Jordan expects the report from John Durham real soon. Well, early data suggests Moderna's vaccine is 95% effective. We could have something by late December, they're telling us. For the second time this month, there's promising news from a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, Moderna said Monday its shots uh, provide strong protection, a dash of hope against the grim backdrop of coronavirus surges here in the U.S. and around the world. A week ago, competitor Pfizer Inc. announced its own COVID-19 vaccine appeared similarly effective, 
news that put both uh, companies on track to seek permission within weeks for emergency use in the U.S. By the way, they were uh, uh, both part of Operation Warp Speed established by the Trump administration. The White House expects to distribute 20 million vaccine doses by December. Low coronavirus vaccine uptake may not delay the return to normal. Preliminary analysis of European countries suggested that 20% vaccination focused on healthcare workers and high-risk groups may suppress transmission in the short term, according to Gabriela Gomes, a statistician at the University of somewhere in Glasgow, Scotland. Well, Biden's coronavirus advisors oppose a national lockdown. Governor Gretchen Whitmer has locked down Michigan again. Washington Governor Jay Inslee, he's ordered sweeping restrictions, too. We won't have time today to go into them, but they are like Oregon, only a bit further. Syria's outgoing envoy admits hiding U.S. troop numbers, but praises Trump's Mideast return. And al-Qaeda's number two accused in 1998 U.S. embassy attacks was killed in Iran. Asia is forming the world's biggest trade bloc, a China-backed group excluding the U.S. I suppose there's no big surprise there. Well, CNN is sounding the alarm over conservatives leaving Twitter and Facebook, calling it a threat to democracy. An Oxford dictionary is changing the definition of man and woman. A New York sheriff has refused to enforce Andrew Cuomo's Thanksgiving order, and new stats reveal a massive New York City exodus with the virus and crime statistics. More than 300,000 New Yorkers have bailed from the big city in the last eight months. City residents uh, filed 295,103 changes of address requests from March 1st through the end of October. Michigan's governor is seeking the shutdown of the Great Lakes oil pipeline. Well, an Alaska Airlines passenger jet hit and killed a brown bear during a landing. That had to be quite something. And North Korea may be militarizing dolphins, according to a report. Well, as I mentioned earlier, SpaceX and NASA, they launched four astronauts from Cape Canaveral in an historic mission. And the smoking gun, Bigfoot was found along a road in Santa Cruz County. Yes, you heard me correctly. Bigfoot was found along a road in Santa Cruz County. Well, it was a stolen statue of Bigfoot anyway. Well, on this day in history, 2006, Democrats embraced Nancy Pelosi as the first woman House Speaker in history, but then select Representative Steny Hoyer as majority leader against her wishes. By the way, she's up for re-election. Whether or not she succeeds this time around is a big question. 1914, the newly created Federal Reserve Bank opens in 12 cities. 1933, the United States and the Soviet Union established diplomatic relations. 1959, on this day in history, the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, The Sound of Music, opens on Broadway. Ever since, the hills have been alive with The Sound of Music. 1973, Skylab 4, carrying a crew of three astronauts, is launched from Cape Canaveral, on an 84-day mission. 2017, Minnesota Democratic Senator Al Franken becomes the first member of Congress to be caught up in a wave of allegations of sexual abuse and inappropriate behavior after a Los Angeles radio anchor accuses him of forcibly kissing her and groping her during a 2006 USO tour. He would later resign his seat. Well, U.S. military commanders expect President Trump to issue a formal order to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan and Iraq before he leaves office on the 20th of January, the Associated Press reports that Trump is expected to withdraw nearly half of U.S. troops there by mid-January to 2,500, while CNN and Fox News have said the uh, Pentagon has issued a warning order to commanders to prepare to withdraw troops uh, in Iraq as well. There's currently roughly 4,500 U.S. troops in Afghanistan, 3,000 in Iraq. There's an interesting column in the Wall Street Journal 
uh, that was issued by generals who were warning that this is not the right move and it will embolden the Taliban and others opposing the U.S. presence. Well, the former data and strategy director for President Donald Trump's 2016 election campaign has canceled his vacation plans to comb through election data for voter fraud. Matt Brainerd and his wife had planned to be in uh, the Dominican Republic, but right now, this is where I'm needed, he said uh, earlier this month. Well, Brainerd has assembled a team to look for inconsistencies in the six contested states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, and Nevada. So far, they've identified 1.25 million voter issues that they followed up on through phone calls and against other databases. Well, the biggest issue they found so far is with voters who had submitted a national change of address form uh, to the post office indicating they moved out of state yet appear to have voted in 2020 in the state they moved from. Washington Governor Jay Inslee issued sweeping coronavirus-related restrictions on Sunday as cases there continue to rise. Today, he said, Sunday, November 15th, is the most dangerous public health day in the last 100 days of our state's history. Inslee said during a news conference, a pandemic is raging in our state. Left unchecked, it will assuredly result in grossly overburdened hospitals and morgues and keep people from obtaining routine by necessary medical treatment for non-COVID conditions. Well, the restrictions, um, his restrictions rather, will encompass nearly all aspects of life in the state of Washington in an effort to slow the spread of the virus. Now, these constraints, although essential for public health, will be the most extensive list of restrictions passed since Inslee issued an emergency stay-at-home order back in March. Under Inslee's orders, restaurants and bars will prohibit all indoor services, limit outdoor service to parties of five or less, indoor gyms, fitness centers, movie theaters, bowling alleys, and museums must shut down completely. Retail and grocery stores must limit their capacity to 25%, and malls are required to keep food court seating closed. Personal uh, uh, personnel services, including barbershops and salons, will also be limited to 25% capacity. Offices are mandated to require employees to work from home if they cannot work from home, and the office remains open. The occupancy must be limited to 25% and be closed to the public. Indoor social gatherings with people outside the immediate household will be prohibited unless attendees have been quarantined for 14 days before the gathering or have been quarantined for seven days and test negative for COVID within two days of the planned event. Outdoor social gatherings should be limited to no more than five people from outside your household, Washington's governor says. Religious services can continue. However, houses of worship must limit indoor attendance to 25% capacity or 2,000, whichever is less. Inslee said both uh, weddings and funeral ceremonies will be limited to 30 people and receptions are prohibited. Inslee also noted that masks must be worn at all times. Choirs, bands, congregational singing will be prohibited. Hmm. The order, um, the new order, I should say, will uh, not apply to schools or courts, which are already operating primarily remotely. Uh, it will also not apply to child care, which has its own set of COVID guidelines. Unlike Oregon, I wasn't aware of a, uh, an end point in the state of Oregon. The two-week pause, as Governor Brown referred to it, uh, only applies for those two weeks and expires on December the 2nd. My guess is it will be extended in some manner unless the numbers uh, reduce significantly. Uh, but in uh, Governor Inslee's case, I was not made aware of an end point uh, to his directive. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a um, quick break and we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, last Friday, Oregon Governor Kate Brown announced new heavy restrictions and closures as part of a statewide COVID lockdown, much like Washington and other states. Businesses, gyms, museums, even uh, outdoor venues have been forced to close um, for a multiple week pause as cases have ascended. Well, churches have been allowed to stay open with a cap on 25 participants indoors and 50 outdoors. This was a big difference than in previous uh, lockdowns. Spring, the shutdown then, which closed churches altogether, had a hard time finding relief compared to other entities like businesses as restrictions were slowly lifted. Well, at the time, last spring, churches sued the state to win greater flexibility and lost in court. Well, now with the fall restrictions, Governor Brown has allowed some measure of openness for Oregon houses of worship. Um, This is a positive step because churches remain some of Oregon's largest venues that can more safely handle people, uh, do not meet daily like businesses and gyms, and are more likely to have visits uh, from people within the same households as compared to restaurants where households intermingle on their visits. They also have the uh, ability to deal with the uh, struggles that people are facing due to this pandemic. And we're reading more and more about the cost, not in terms of our economy, but the cost in personal lives to the kind of lockdown that we've been facing. Well, the chances for a La Nina known to bring colder and wetter winters to the Pacific Northwest is basically a sure bet. That's according to government meteorologists. Well, that means it has about a 95% chance of driving our weather this winter starting in January and has a better chance of lingering well into the spring. Well, I guess that's all right. Well, the new forecast came out Thursday from the National Climate Prediction Center under the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. La Nina is the opposite of El Nino, which more people are familiar with. La Nina occurs when cooler than normal water along the equator in the Pacific Ocean dominates the eastern half of the ocean and collides with the coast of Central and South America. And El Nino is when the water is warmer uh, than normal. Well, the difference can be as little as a few degrees, but it can upend the world's weather as well, not just along the Pacific coast. Well, meteorologists said that they have watched the La Nina strengthen through the month of October, although it won't really start affecting the weather in the Pacific Northwest until January. So we can't blame these last few very uh, stormy days on that. Nick Bond is uh, works with the University of Washington Department of Atmospheric Sciences and is affiliated with NOAA's Pacific Marine Environmental Laboratory. He is an expert on how oceans interact with the atmosphere, and he says that uh, you can think of the tropics as kind of the heat engine for the global climate system. He serves as Washington State's climatologist. He says when you disrupt that heat engine, um, it also alters the clusters of thunderstorms uh, in that part of the world, and that has an impact on global weather patterns. Well, for the Pacific Northwest, temperatures promise to be cooler with more precipitation. He said that... um, uh, Maybe just a few degrees, but does promise a healthier snowpack, good skiing, and more irrigate, irrigation water for farmers come uh, this summertime. It also means that extreme windstorms will be less likely through Puget Sound, and he hopes less of a chance of lowland snow near sea level. So I'm not sure what that means for those of us who live, you know, lower. It also means winter will feel like uh, it's hanging around too long. Well, that's usually the case here in the Pacific Northwest. Well, the Climate Prediction Center said there there's about a 65% chance of it influencing the climate in the months of March, April, and May, months we like to refer to as spring. Well, in other uh, news, Thomas Gallatin points out that uh, while COVID is spiking, 
lockdowns really aren't the answer. And as we had an interview not long ago on a book, The Price of Panic, they point out that experts really differ on what the right response ought to be to these kinds of spikes. But Gallatin points out in his uh, recent column, And the Patriot Post, as many predicted, cooler weather has coincided with higher COVID infections. With new record numbers of positive diagnoses being set nearly every day this week. And along with the spiking numbers have come new calls for shutdowns. Leading the latest shutdown brigade uh, were members of self-proclaimed President-elect Joe Biden's coronavirus task force. And calling for another lockdown, Dr. Michael Osterholm asserted that economic impact could be minimalized by paying for a package right now to cover all the wages, lost wages, for individual workers, for losses to small companies, to mid-sized companies, for cities, states, county, government. Do you have any idea what what would re- be required to cover all of that? Well, he went on to say, uh, we could do all of that. If we uh, did that, then we could lock down for four to six weeks. The deficit, the cost to the U.S. government would be astronomical. Anyway, from Osterholm's perspective, ending the virus is the top priority, even if it means shuttering the economy. There is no trade-off between health and the economy, he declared. Both require aggressively getting control of the virus. History will judge us harshly if we miss this life and economy-saving opportunity to get this right this time, end quote. Well, the problem with Osterholm's the government will solve everything idealism is that it's a recipe for socialism, which is precisely what hard left members of the Democrat Party want. And there is no excuse for a return to such drastic measures, given our increased knowledge of the virus, one more effectual treatments and the recent development regarding a vaccine or vaccines, as we've just learned. Shuttering the economy is the last thing the country needs. Well, regarding vaccine, President Trump over the weekend held a press conference announcing as soon as April, the vaccine will be available to the entire general public, with the exception of places like New York State, where for political reasons, the governor decided to say, and I don't think it's good politically, I think it's very bad from a health point that he wants to take his time on the vaccine. He doesn't trust where the vaccines came from. We won't be delivering it in New York until we have authorization to do so. And that pains me to say that. Well, of course, once there's or if there's a change of administration, my guess is he'll his tune will change rather quickly and the credit will be shifted away from Operation Warp Speed to the new administration that's had expressed skepticism throughout the campaign season. Well, as National Review's Wesley Smith argues, lock the country down again and the partial recovery the economy has produced in the past few months will collapse, dashing the hopes and dreams of millions of Americans. Even if the government pays employees and business owners lost wages or profits, as Osterholm proposes, that won't do more than uh, put a thin bandage on the gaping wound of a lockdown will tear into the fabric of society. And if the uh, in the cure, we'll witness increased suicides, abuse, addiction, social isolation, and other assorted evils. Well, besides um, one look at the failure of Europe's lockdowns, should be warning enough to avoid such a foolish path. He goes on to write, furthermore, the Biden administration will likely get little support for such draconian policies from Republican state governors. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves, for example, dismissed the efficacy of a national lockdown, saying, I don't think much of anything's uh, going to change with respect to the virus. The fact is that we're going to try to work with whomever the president is, but we're not going to participate in a nationwide lockdown. The people of Mississippi can't just go home, shut down their small businesses, shut down their restaurants, shut down their gyms, shut down down other small businesses for six weeks and just think that you can come back in six weeks from now, flip the switch on and everything's going to be fine. That's 
not the way the economy works, end quote. Well, meanwhile, the coronavirus promises to wreak havoc on the holiday season as Americans faced with rising infection numbers will likely uh, travel less to visit family. And this um, there will also be a significant impact to the economy due to fewer holiday shoppers, retail businesses being constrained by reduced capacity, allowances for in-store customers and more. Well, the unfortunate reality is COVID-19 is not going away anytime soon. At the same time, it's not something that's uh, that should drive us to panic. And the old, as the old uh, British expression states, keep calm and carry on. We'll see what happens if Joe Biden becomes the next president in January. I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office. Thank you for listening tomorrow on the program. Barring any technical difficulties, we'll talk with Jill Eileen Smith. She walked before us, grace, courage, and strength from 12 women of the Old Testament. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.